Welcome to the Workspace Podcast. I am your host, Justin Moran. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode features Emily Smithley of SLN Law of Sharon, Massachusetts. Emily is a business attorney focused almost exclusively on employment law. She represents both employees and employers as they try to work through some very sensitive topics. We had a great discussion covering a broad range of issues that most small businesses think through, from contracts to partnerships to employment issues. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Emily, thanks a lot for joining us today. Sure thing. Happy to be here. Why don't you just take a few minutes and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your law practice and and how you help small businesses. Sure. So my name is Emily Smithley. I've got a practice called SLN Law in Sharon, Massachusetts. I've been practicing for 22 years and in this business since 2009. We primarily help individuals and small businesses with employment issues, with contract issues, with some risk management issues as they come up. Mm -hmm. Very good. I've always thought of contracts as something you enter into and kind of put in your desk in the hopes that you don't need it one day. But if you do need it one day, it's there to protect hopefully both sides, but certainly you want to protect yourself. As a small business owner, what are the types of scenarios where we should think about contracts to protect ourselves? Sure. The big picture answer is you're entering contracts every single day and you don't even think about it. Okay. Because <laughs> they're not always written. You go hand a guy a dollar and he hands you a soda. You just made an agreement to buy a soda for a dollar, but nobody's going to make a big deal out of it because it's a soda. Yeah. Where it's really important to be thoughtful about your contracts because it's not a soda and it's not a dollar, mm. it kind of depends on what's at stake. And I would say the purpose of contracts is as you described, but it doesn't have to be just that. A good contract also helps both parties understand clearly what the deal is and what they expect from each other. Okay. So even if you put it in your desk and forget about it, if you've read it, if it's drafted well, if it's done with a proper discussion with the other side, it's going to help you pull it out one day and remember, did I promise to do that? Right. Or did he promise to do that? Right. As a small business owner, the, one of the biggest things that I'm concerned about is growth. With growth, you have more customers, you have more revenue, and you also have more employees. So yep. on the revenue generation side and on the employment side, kind of help us think through the things that we should be concerned about. Yep. So the biggest thing to think about in growth mode from a legal risk perspective is as you start adding employees your life starts becoming more complex. Okay. You know, as a non-legal matter, you've got lots of challenges in figuring out how to manage those people to their best performance, how to hire the right people. But you also need to be prepared for things going wrong. The biggest mistakes that we see small businesses make is not getting educated about the basics of the wage and hour laws in okay. Massachusetts, not getting educated about what is and is not their responsibility as employers. Because the people who walk into lawyers' offices looking to sue their employers, once that once something has gone that wrong, you can't go back and fix it. Okay. So we like to talk to small businesses even when they only have one or two employees. Get them on the right start. Make sure they're classifying their employees properly so that as they grow, they don't have to go look back in their rearview mirror and go back and fix the thing that they started. And on the growth side from a revenue perspective... Mm -hmm entering into contracts with either your suppliers or your customers, what are the biggest points of, of conflict that you see in, sure. in non-compliance, if you will? The biggest point of conflict on the customer side is you need to make sure you're going to get paid. 
Right. Um, and for some businesses that accept that only do the service if they've got a debit card up front, that's less of an issue. But for a lot of businesses that, particularly service businesses, you'll provide a service, the month ends, you send a bill, mm-hmm. and you kind of hope that it gets paid. So it's important, particularly as you're growing and that every little bit of revenue is kind of spoken for, mm-hmm. to think about whether your contracts allow you to collect attorney's fees if you've got to chase a customer for money. Think about whether in your profession or service you can, within the rules of your profession, take money up front as a retainer. But from the contract perspective, being clear about payment, being clear about what happens if there's non-payment, and being super clear about what you're going to deliver so that your customer can't come back and say, wait a minute, I don't have to pay you because you said you'd do all these other things for me. Right, right. And then on the vendor side, you know, the tricky part is those are often not really negotiable, right? You're going to sign up for a service and you're going to get the three-page thing with the fine print. <laughs> And yeah. not, they're not going to take a redlined version back. But you still got to read it because you got to understand you still have a choice. You're the customer. Mm-hmm. You got to understand whether you're taking on any, any risk that you can't live with. Big kinds of risk. The other thing to look at in those contracts, particularly as it relates to your risk, is can you get out of it if you're not happy? Right. And if you can't and the money's big enough and you don't have another alternative, maybe you've got to suck it up and sign it, but at least you know that that's there. Okay. Good advice. So much of the economy today is driven by the gig economy, if you will. There's people providing services for others. Not a lot of manufacturing going on anymore, so we all have to make money somehow, so people are specializing in certain things. A lot of our members here at Workspace are either independent solo entrepreneurs and just start off by providing services for somebody. Long story short, when is a good time to think about, all right, I'm actually making money at this thing. I need to enter into some sort of legal entity besides Justin Moran Incorporated here. What's the next step, I guess? Honestly, I don't think you ought to start waiting to make money before you do it. Okay. You know, the reason that you do an LLC or an S-Corp or or some kind of entity is to make sure that any liabilities that come up, any risk that you take on as a business person is your business's risk. It's not your family's risk. It's not your home at risk. Yeah. And you can make mistakes before you make money. You can incur exposure even if you're not making money. It's so easy to do. There are reputable, even online services. If you're going to be a single member LLC, mm-hmm. they'll charge you 500 bucks plus the $500 filing fee. You can always go back and make it fancier if you get a business partner or it becomes more complex, but at least you have that protection. Okay. It's a good point about the partnership because oftentimes in the gig economy, people are matching up with somebody who provides like-type services that are complementary to somebody else's, and then they render both of their services to, you know, a larger company that needs, you know, both of them, if you will. So what kind of partnership should you think about that becomes the norm rather than the exception for somebody out there? Yep. So, you know, really depends on the business model. You can do a partnership, you can do a corporate form with two or more members. The challenges are the same in both. You know, the the form People's accountants probably have more to say about that than I do. But the challenges are the same. You're going to need an agreement between the partners 
you're going to need to make sure that people know how they can get out if they want to get out. You're going to want to make sure that it's clear who's making decisions, mm. that it's clear what requires consensus, all of these things. It's like a prenuptial agreement. Um, <laughs> right. And and these kinds of disputes are like divorces yeah. when they happen. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> so a lot of us have this sort of independent contractor status, if you will. Can you talk through some of the points of exposure there that people should be at least thinking about or concerned about? Sure. I mean, first of all, if you are the person doing the gig in the gig economy as an independent contractor, you don't have legal exposure. That The problem is with the people who are employing you. Massachusetts is extremely strict about who can be classified as an independent contractor. And they're strict about it because... If you're not getting a W-2, they're not paying your FICA taxes. They're not paying into unemployment sometimes, but rarely they have workers' comp. The whole safety net for employees is just bypassed. And most people who are classified as independent contractors are not properly classified. The test is they have to be free from supervision and control. They have to be providing services to others also. So they're sort of in this business. And here's the kicker. What they do for you as the employer has to be something that's not part of your regular business. So I can hire somebody to paint my office as an independent contractor. I can't hire somebody to do legal research for me as an independent contractor, even if they only come in an hour a week. Hmm. Okay. So and back to growth, a lot of people are tempted to cut that corner because it feels less permanent. Okay. It sort of feels more like, ah, I can just get this guy in as a 1099, and if it's not going well, you know, we'll just go our separate ways. You can do all of that with a W-2 employee. There's just so much risk in the independent contractor route that I wouldn't recommend it. Okay. <laughs> all right. If you are in one of those relationships and the company, the person that's hired you, asks you to do something that you just don't feel comfortable with. I guess, what are the red flags when you're asked to do something outside of your scope? You mean red flags to to you maybe not classified properly or just generally speaking? like I guess both, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, my default rule is if you're being paid on a 1099, they're probably doing something wrong, so the red flag's already flying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But the good news is it's not your exposure. It's your employer's bad. Yeah. You know, as the gig E or gig or, I don't know what yeah, the right word is. I haven't come up with that yet. You just have to know you're going to pay a little more in taxes at the end of the year than you would if it was being withheld and be ready for that. But you're not breaking the law by being an independent contractor. Got it. Um, bigger question asks you to do something that's uncomfortable outside of your scope. I mean, that goes all across the board, right? Whether you're a contractor or an employer. Mm. If your employer asks you to do something illegal, and you refuse to do it, and they terminate you or discipline you for it, that's potentially retaliation. There's not a lot of protection for the ick feeling. Yeah, right. For the, like, I just don't feel like that's right, or that's not fair. And people have to make tough decisions, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, employment at will cuts both ways, though. They can fire you anytime. You can walk out the door anytime. Right. It has to get pretty extreme for you to have a legally protected right to say no. Yeah. What about non-compete clauses? Because if you're out in the economy, in the gig economy, if you will, providing services, you obviously learn that from somewhere. Yep. Um, and oftentimes you, you learn that at a, at a former job, let's say. And now you raised your own flag and started XYZ consulting practice, let's say. What are the finer points of the non-compete clauses that you may have signed a couple of years ago 
yep. that, that you should be concerned about? So non-competes are only enforceable to protect, quote, legitimate business interests of the employer. That doesn't mean what you think it means, okay. right? Because we're sitting here today, and of course it's legitimate to not want competition. That's not what that means. It really means it's got to protect either trade secrets, which is proprietary information that's important to your former employer that nobody else knows about, or goodwill, which is more commonly in sales positions. Um, think of a different point in time when somebody in sales might call on 25 customer accounts for 15 years and he goes over to the competition and starts calling on those same accounts with a new name. Hmm. Goodwill is the relationship that he built up with those customers. That's it. Those are the only two. I'm mad at you isn't a legitimate interest. Yeah, um, right. I find it inconvenient that you're offering services in my neighborhood. Not a legitimate business interest. So that's thing number one. Thing number two is it's very difficult to predict. Courts are all over the place in what they enforce. Generally is around like the extent to which the restriction matches the goal. So for example, if you're in sales with a nationwide territory, you may have a non-compete with a nationwide reach and a judge may say, okay. If you're a hairdresser mm. and you've got a 10-mile non-compete, a judge may look at that and say, your customers only come from two miles away. That's way too broad. So it kind of matches the situation. Okay. Um, things that people in that situation hanging out their own shingle, putting up their own flag should think about if their former employer didn't do something they said they were going to do, if they didn't pay him what they said they were going to pay him, if they didn't meet some obligation, you know, there's some room to argue that they already breached the agreement. I see. Okay. If your role changed significantly and they didn't ask you to sign a new one, some say that voids the non-compete, but you just never know. Right. You know, if, if you signed one and you're doing something in your fields in which you signed one, you should at least have a conversation with an attorney. Okay. Do judges across the Commonwealth sort of vary in their interpretation of some of these things? I mean, is it kind of like luck of the draw if you're in that situation? And it's not judge-specific so much as it is fact-specific. So every case that goes before any judge has a different story about what the person's job was, what the competition is, what the protected. So it just, it's just hard to be principled about it. And most of these things play out at the trial court level. They rarely get appealed. This is how the law usually gets clear. 15 different trial courts say 15 different things. Somebody takes it up to the appeals court and the appeals court says, this is what the law is. Yeah. That just hasn't really happened in a useful way. In okay. this field, look. Every summer, the law, make, the legislature tries to change it. About this time every year, sort of late July, there's always a big hubbub about they're close to a deal on non-competes. Never happens. No kidding. Wow, <laughs> they just keep kicking it, or can't come to an agreement, or something. Maybe the lawyers recognize it for the good gig that it is for us. Maybe. I, that's all I can say. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> who knows what lobby is pushing that button? <laughs> what about as an employee? It can get uncomfortable if you think you've been wronged by your employer and you've got a mortgage, you've got two kids, and yep. you've got a healthy income, but you you feel as though you've been wronged. In my mind, I think it would be quite dangerous to, to call a lawyer because you might lose your job immediately. I, I don't know. When does an employee really have to think about calling a lawyer yep. and possibly bringing suit to the person that's paying them for what they're doing? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, technically... If they fire you for trying to assert your rights, 
that's retaliation and you get to sue them, but you're out of a job. Right. Right. So that's cold comfort until you finish your lawsuit. At the same time, it's really important for employees to understand what is and isn't illegal as early in the process as possible. Hmm. So we get calls all day long about workplace bullying. Workplace bullying happens all the time and it's terrible, but it's not illegal unless it's sexual harassment or some form of discrimination. Now, could, some of these uh, folks who call, if they'd known that six months before, they might have made some different choices about how to handle the situation. But the thing that's important to know is you can go see a lawyer and you don't have to tell your employer you're going to see a lawyer. Right. You know, it, the way the privilege works is if you walk into a lawyer's office and ask them advice, the privilege attaches whether you hire them to sue anybody or not. So I'd say as soon as you're worried. Okay. Should you sue them the next day? Most times not. And do you get involved in trying to mediate things between an employee and employer or not? Sometimes. You know, usually by the time we come in, the relationship is over. Okay. And, you know, there may be some negotiations around severance. There may be some attempts to resolve the dispute earlier. Sometimes, but rarely, we are working behind the scenes with employees who are trying to kind of navigate a situation. It's harder for a lawyer to add value in that context because so much of it is political. Yeah. Right. You know, so our role then is just as a check-in. Yeah. Like I couldn't tell you what's going to work in your negotiations with your boss. I don't know your boss. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have one, so that's even harder. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there's been a lot going on in sort of the, the Me Too movement in the last, I guess it's been a couple of years almost, maybe, I'm not sure. As employee, as an employer, excuse me, or small business owners, what should we think about besides not being a jerk? That's a start. As far as, far as, <laughs> as, far as creating a culture and environment yeah. where everyone feels welcome and accepted and everything. Yeah, no, it, it's huge and it's real. Mm, of course. Yeah. You know, and I, I think just outside of the Me Too movement, I recently I'm working on another book that's about women's issues in the workplace and I've been interviewing a lot of people really? all different ages. I don't remember how many people I interviewed, but all but one had a story about workplace sexual harassment. No kidding. So, I mean, the first thing is for an employer, the first step is believe that it's real. Yeah. It may not be real in every single situation. There may be false allegations, but to truly believe that this is a real thing mm -hmm. that happens and is part of the daily experience of women in the workplace and has been for decades. The second is create a process. It doesn't have to be fancy. Figure out who's the person that an employee should come to with a complaint. And it doesn't have to be the president of the company. It doesn't have to be an HR officer. It should be somebody with integrity who has the trust of people who work in the company okay. who will honestly investigate the allegation. And you're required to do those investigations because once you know about it as management, you become responsible for whether it's remedied or not. Okay. And does that typically involve a third party to, to do that investigation? or You can. Yeah. Um, some companies do it in-house. Companies who have, you know, HR departments usually have specialists in there that will go and interview and, and sort of know the rules about what they should and shouldn't say and ask. Smaller companies, if you don't have a trusted person, I suppose the owner of the company does the investigation unless the owner of the company is the target of the investigation. I have seen companies outsource it to employment lawyers. Yeah. 
that's not a practice area that we particularly have, but I know firms who will. One of the services they offer is to do the investigation okay. and make a confidential recommendation. It's important for employers to know that even if the person who complains is wrong, they can't be retaliated against. Mm-hmm. So if I make an allegation of harassment, you investigate in good faith, you decide I totally misunderstood the situation, and then you say to me, that was really not fun. You're out of here. Yeah. That creates an even bigger problem. So since all but one of those, however many, maybe yeah. hundred or so Probably women, wasn't 100. maybe not a hundred, but that much time. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody's got a story, and right. anecdotally, everybody's got a story. So all but one had a story. I suspect that means that you know there's a, a lot of people out there that just don't know any better. Is it your responsibility as a employer to have that in the handbook? This isn't appropriate. This isn't appropriate. This isn't appropriate. Are people ripping up their employee manuals and rewriting them? I don't think so. And I think the reason is, I mean, there's always been a law in Massachusetts that says you're supposed to have a harassment policy. There's no discernible consequences for not having one, but it's there. I think people are going back to make sure they have policies. I don't think they need to change the definitions because this stuff is not subtle. Yeah, right. Sometimes it is, sure. But the stuff that's being outed in the Me Too movement, the stuff that I hear about anecdotally, it's not hard to figure out that that qualifies as harassment. Now, there are gray areas, but you're never going to be able to write all of those into your policy. What your policy has to be clear about is that harassment's not tolerated. We've got a clear process. We're going to use the process with integrity. Mm -hmm. Are employers coming to you asking you to sort of audit their thinking? You know, we haven't had a lot of those calls. Yeah, okay. (laughs) It's sort of like all lawyers are evil except my lawyer. You know, everybody out there is doing a terrible job except me. Yeah, right. Nobody believes that they don't have this under control. Yeah. It would keep me up at night if I had 50 or 100 employees. (laughs) That that would be a concern if those stats are, well, obviously they're true. Uh, Mine are not at all scientific, but, you know, you can just kind of tell by what's in the news. Yeah. It's very prevalent. Wow. Heavy. (laughs) Here's a a quiz for you. Do you know when sexual harassment first actually became unlawful? I suspect it. It was not that long ago. 1991. You know what else happened in 1991? Anita Hill. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to like yeah, no. veer into the political. But. No, no. I mean, that these are real topics these days. Yeah. For sure. Well, thanks for joining us. Sure, no problem. It's a pleasure. Is there anything you can leave our listeners with today about just when you need to protect yourself and when it might be a good time to call someone like you if they, if they get themselves in an uncomfortable situation? Yeah. Two employees. I've rarely spoken to anybody in my consult room who didn't know when it was time. Yeah. Okay. You, know, you got a gut check on that. Yeah. So follow your heart. Yeah. For employers, there's um, a chapter at the end of my book called Just Because It's Legal Doesn't Mean It Won't Get You Sued. Be a human. Okay. You know, the people who come to my office looking for reasons to sue their employers are the people who were blindsided by a decision, are the people who had a disrespectful relationship with some of the people who were mad. There are plenty of people who could sue. They don't. Yeah. Because they were treated fairly. Speaking of your book, Rules of the Road, What You Need to Know About Employment Laws in Massachusetts. You so kindly gave me a copy of this. Where can people get it if they'd like to read more? They can either go to our website, www.slnlaw.com. Be warned, half of you listening probably just flipped that around to SNL Law. 
It is not. It's S is in Sam, L is in Lion, N is in Nancy, law.com. Or you can call our office at 781-784-2322. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. All right. You're welcome. It's been great. Well, thanks for joining us today. That was a great episode, again, featuring Emily Smith-Lee of SLN Law of Sharon Mass. If you ever have any questions for me or if you ever want to be a guest on the podcast, feel free to get in touch. My email address is info at workspacema.com. Thanks so much. See you on the next one.